The future of the South African tobacco industry was changed almost overnight when President Ramaphosa declared a state of disaster on the 6th of March, 2020. In addition to the nationwide lockdown, the sale of tobacco products was outlawed. Manufacturers and consumers alike were forced to turn to underground endeavors. The ban was eventually lifted on the 17th of August after billions of rands were pushed into the already deep pockets of organized crime. South Africa's tobacco industry, however, is no stranger to criminality. It has a long and complicated history involving deceit, collusion, state capture, and murder. Nevertheless, the tobacco ban undoubtedly will have far-reaching consequences on the South African market. But before we're able to understand the long-term consequences of the ban, we first need to understand where the industry was before the ban and how it got there. That's where Johan van Lochenberg comes in. Van Lochenberg, a former SARS official and author of the book Tobacco Wars, oversaw Project Honey Badger, a project targeting illicit activity in the South African tobacco industry. Over his years at SARS, Van Luchenberg developed a deep and nuanced understanding of the industry and its players. But before we get into his time at SARS and his thoughts on the implications of the lockdown, Van Luchenberg takes us back to the late 80s. I recall even, you know, when I went to high school, how many of the sporting events in South Africa, like, you know, these cricket day and night matches, were associated with a particular cigarette brand, um, by way of example. So it was perfectly um, socially acceptable and, and it was part of society. Now, what was common in those early days is that these brands that I'm referring to all belong to multinational companies. And the specific ones that I'm referring to would be British American Tobacco, Philip Morris International, JTI, RJ Reynolds, and those brands that I think most of us would know of even if we never smoked in our life. And they dominated the market worldwide. Pretty much uh, anywhere in the world, you could pick up any one of those brands. You could buy them, as I said, on the airplane or at any shop. And they were monopolies and they were competing with each other, in a sense, for market share. And this continued into the 90s. So they were the dominant players into the 90s worldwide, and they had run free run uh, on how they would ad- advertise the product. And yeah, it was a free for all. Their free for all was soon coming to an end, however. Class action lawsuits against these multinational companies in the US during the late 90s marked the beginning of the end of their monopoly in South Africa. The negative consequences of smoking, in particular, people dying earlier and and, and cancer-related ailments and so on, that uh, were directly attributable to the use of cigarettes. They came to the fore and these companies had to face the the scientific evidence of the unhealthy nature of cigarettes. And slowly but surely, an anti-smoking sentiment came about. It was around this time that the World Health Organization jumped on the bandwagon as well. The World Health Organization began to issue worldwide protocols applicable to members who belong to the the WHO that advised them how to um, manage policy and legislation with respect to uh, marketing and use and sale and trade in cigarette products and tobacco-related products. Soon afterwards, South Africa and Minister of Health Lamini Zuma heeded the advice of the WHO and followed suit. Towards the late 90s and early 2000s, South Africa as a developing nation and with our history happened to be one of the countries that were fairly quick out of the gates when it came to introducing legislation that can be considered to be anti-smoking sentiment. And so what you saw were certain bans on the advertising and marketing of cigarettes. You saw uh, limitations on the age of who could buy cigarettes. You saw limitations on where cigarette products or tobacco products, tobacco products could be consumed. 
So no longer could you just do it, you know, in restaurants. There had to be dedicated smoking areas. The banning of smoking on airplanes and in, 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 in public transport and so forth. Uh, so the, the Minister of Health at the time, Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, was quite ahead of her time, I think, uh, if we if we look at how some of the developed nations uh, only brought many of these regulations and laws into being uh, almost a decade later. And South Africa was certainly lauded for its um, early move on these uh, protocols issued. So that would have been the, 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 the early dynamics on the, the tobacco market as a whole uh, in the 80s, 90s, leading up into the early 2000s. But to the dismay, the multinational brands were facing serious threats on all fronts to their profitability and market share. Effectively, what the, the multinational brands then were up against were, were three forces. On the one hand, you had a lot of people who were manufacturing counterfeit products of their brands and pushing these into the market. So the consumer was unable to distinguish whether they were buying the real thing or not. And these were all underground factories situated all over the world. And this was applicable in South Africa too. So in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, there were seizures by uh, the state and law enforcement agencies of significant amounts of counterfeit products. And what this simply means is, you know, it's a box of a certain brand that claims to be that brand, but in reality is not. It's the old Hong Kong thing, you know, as, as our South Africans say. And, and that was predominantly their biggest competitive factor within the cigarette market in those early years. At the same time, they were also now up against this anti-smoking sentiment and the legislative frameworks that came into being all over the world in different phases and stages, which put a pressure on their market share because, in effect, um, you know, the, the growth in the smoking population slowed down. Fewer people considered smoking to be cool anymore and, and so forth. And it wasn't as socially acceptable as it was before. And then what you had was a lot of studies came out around that time in support of this legislative framework to indicate the, the long-term health consequences of smoking and the, neg the negative consequences of that. What you then also had was the third challenge at that point in time, and that is that governments worldwide, as a rule, increase the, the taxes on the production of cigarettes and tobacco manufacturers annually as powerful cost, which in effect made smoking more and more expensive. But these multinational companies, worth billions of dollars, weren't planning on giving into those challenges without putting up a fight. The way in which the multinationals try to counter that or deal with that was, in the main, they were trying to lobby governments or influence governments in respect of how they implemented these legislative frameworks, looking to de delay things. They were becoming more creative with their marketing uh, because they, their channels of marketing were cut off. And uh, they also sought to direct law enforcement agencies towards combating the counterfeit uh, trade in the cigarette um, sector. And that was their reality at that point in time. Enter the GPs. Something strange happened, in, particularly in South Africa, then in the, in the early 2000s, because of these dynamics. You saw in the early 2000s a marked increase in the volume of alternative tobacco manufacturers shooting up. Um, and they effectively saw one gap in the market. They recognized that because smoking was becoming more uh, expensive and because the ability of the multinationals to no longer dominantly advertise their, their brands uh, and because the, the cost of cigarettes increased um, markedly so, and, and that trend was going to be a continuous trend. 
they entered the market horizontally by introducing lesser known brands or unknown brands at a cheaper price than what the multinational brands were um, being put on the shelves. And they cared less for marketing. And so you had these so-called independent manufacturers uh, sprouting up, not just in South Africa, all over the world, but in particular in South Africa, there was a concentration of this. So you saw companies like uh, Mastermind in the Eastern Cape that produced the, the Yes brand. You saw another um, company in, in Johannesburg uh, called Masters International. You saw a company called uh, Goldleaf Tobacco, which was Zimbabwe-based at the time, but they began to operate uh, in South Africa. And you saw companies like Delta Tobacco and uh, Westhouse as examples. All of them had the following in common. They were smaller outfits, so they were cheaper to run. They were all licensed, so they were all legitimate. But the brands that they produced were unknown brands, and the product that they put on the shelves were much cheaper than the multinational brands. And you then saw a shift in the change of the consumers, the smokers. They began to move towards being less brand conscious. They no longer bought into the, you know, the tough guy in the Amazon or the cowboys or the sexy people. But they began to look for cheaper products. And as a consequence, some of them shifted towards buying these unknown brands, which then received the nickname cheapies. So they were called the cheapies. And there was a proliferation of these cheapies in South Africa. You know, you, you, you would always see them sort of at the bottom of the, of the, of the shop shelves. And there would be names you'd never heard of before. Uh, and over time, they began to eat into the dominant market of the multinational tobacco uh, companies. And so where, where the multinationals, in particular British American tobacco, dominated the cigarette market in South Africa in excess of 80% of all cigarettes consumed in the, in the 90s and early 2000s, they began to lose a part of that uh, market to, to these um, smaller independent companies. Much like their more established counterparts, the cheapies weren't shy to bend the rules. All of them seemed to be willing to cut, cut corners and even um, break the law. And so what you would see in the early 2000s are publicly available records of activities by the South African Revenue Service, who was still in its uh, infancy, taking on some of these smaller um, manufacturers and ultimately shutting some of them down. So there is record of action taken against the company, the company Goldleaf. There's public record of the South African Revenue Service shutting down Mastermind, as well as Masters International. In fact, the, as far as I know, the biggest bust of raw tobacco in the history of the world uh, remains a record held by the South African Revenue Service, which was uh, an amount of 75 tons of raw tobacco seized in one day. That carries a market value of 30 million rand. And it would have been a whole lot more had it found its way into cigarettes. And so when one looks at a graph of the portion of the sector that was considered to be illicit versus the, the illicit part of the, the tobacco sector um, from the year 2000 until somewhere in the mid-2000s, what you see is a fairly stable straight line that suggested that around about 10% of the total market was considered to be illegal and 90% of the market was then legitimate trade. It's uh, by and large then a, a significant portion of the illicit um, part of the sector could have been attributed to some of these smaller players that I've referred to. Mm -hmm. And I think the revenue service was quite successful 
in at least halting the activities and even shutting down some. Uh, I forget there was another one which dates back to the early 2000s, a company called Phoebus Apollo. And that matter, uh, believe it or not, is still before our courts today. So it's probably one of the longest running prosecutions in the history of democratic South Africa. Sure. Uh, but it certainly, I think, kept a lid on, on the illicit trade up to a point. But, much like the mythical creature, the Hydra, for every one company saw it shut down, two would pop up in its place. One of the consequences of the revenue service addressing these entities that were participating in both legitimate and illegal trade was that it opened up a gap for others to uh, step into. And so towards the mid-2000s, you saw a absolute mushrooming of these independent uh, factories. And so out of that came companies that are today quite well-known and have quite well-established brands, such as amalgamated tobacco manufacturers in Peter Maritzburg, Carney Links, which is um, also quite well-known, they're based in Johannesburg, Goldleaf Tobacco Corporation came about, and they straddled Johannesburg and the Eastern Cape. There's a company called Afroberg, there's a company called um, Fulha, and a few others. And so they effectively began to eat into this market that, that was dominated by mainly British American tobacco. And as I say, they weren't averse to cutting corners in their, in their early years of coming about. And you see this quite visibly because towards the mid-2000s, the portion of the sector that was considered illicit grew markedly. And there was quite a spike, and it moved up to around 15%, um, and even closer to 20%. So by 20, the year 2011, anything around 15% to 20% of the total uh, sector. So, what exactly makes a cigarette illicit? Well, um, you know, that's, that's a, a very good question, because I think many people use the term wrong. The only uh, cigarettes that can be considered illicit from the word go would be counterfeit products. So that's where cigarettes are made illegally in an underground factory. It's not registered with any revenue authority in the world. And um, it's a complete under, underground production of cigarettes. And they may use um, fictitious brands that don't exist and not, are not registered or they may copy brands of legitimate traders. Those cigarettes would be illicit cigarettes from the word go. Any other cigarette and brand cannot be considered illegal or illicit per se. It would depend on the consignment or the container or the master case or the carton or the packet of cigarettes or the cigarette in your hands. That would determine whether it can be considered illicit. And that has to do with how that cigarette ended up in your hands. So effectively, the most common type of contraventions that would render that particular cigarette or packet of cigarettes illicit would be things like if it was smuggled into the country. And smuggled means it was brought into the country in a manner not declared to the authorities and therefore the relevant taxes were not paid to the government when those cigarettes were brought into the market. If they are smuggled into the country, regardless of brand, those cigarettes would be illicit. Another type of scam that um, is quite rife would be the unrecorded manufacturing of cigarettes. So these are legitimate factories that have licenses, they're allowed to manufacture cigarettes, they count the cigarettes and they record these to the revenue authorities and they pay the taxes on them. But what they do is they also run what's often referred to as B stock or number two stock, which is they switch off the counters, they run the machines late at night or um, you know, in underground factories. They use the, the legitimate branding 
and they simply push these into the market without having declared that to the revenue authority and paid tax on that. In that case, if you have a cigarette in your hand that was manufactured in that way, that cigarette would be an illicit cigarette. It does not render the brand illicit. Then another scam would be uh, related to the export of cigarettes, and it's often referred to as ghost exports, which is effectively where manufacturers make cigarettes uh, in the ordinary course of their um, manufacturing process, and they declare these as intended for export to another country. And the consequence of that is that they do not have to pay certain taxes on it because it's not going to be consumed locally. And they then pretend to export the cigarettes, but in turn divert them into the local market. And as a consequence, money is collected on the sale of these go straight into their pockets. Ghost exports can happen uh, in many ways, but the effect is the same. They, they say they're exporting them, but they don't. Another scam related to that is often called round tripping, which is where they do export the, the, the cigarettes and as a consequence don't pay the, have to pay the relevant uh, taxes. But they then basically smuggle the cigarettes back into the country. And so that's where the term round trip comes from. So when they smuggle them back into the country, no taxes were paid and they're able to sell them at a lower cost than their competitors. Other scams that are quite, free, uh, quite frequent, uh, apart from ghost exports and, and so on, would be, um, you know, counterfeiting has almost disappeared, but I see it's, it's, it's starting again. But other scams would be things like selling cigarettes as loose drawers or loose sticks, um, which is in terms of uh, um, legislation overseen by the Department, Department of Health, that's illegal. You may technically not sell cigarettes um, one at a time. So effectively, if you were to buy one cigarette stick, that's unlawful and that would render that cigarette uh, illicit. So that's broadly speaking the approach one should take if you want to determine whether a packet of cigarettes uh, is, is illicit. Of course, now during lock, lockdown, because of the complete ban in trade of cigarettes, any cigarette or packet of cigarettes or carton or box or master case that you may buy during lockdown will be considered illicit, regardless of mm. brand. Commence Operation Honey Badger. In 2011, the Revenue Service began to dedicate resources to focus particularly on this, uh, this worrying trend because of course it affects the inflow of revenue and that affects the ability of government to fund itself and to fund civil servants and pay social grants and um, you know, fund their, their programs to make our society a better society for all. And so one of the, one of the, the, the high risk sectors that the revenue service began to focus on happened to be the tobacco, the tobacco sector. And that was really where Project Honey Badger was born. However, SARS weren't the only state players in the game. Around the same time, different law enforcement and intelligence uh, agencies of the state formed a multinational uh, or multi-agency task team, which was overseen by the Hawks and comprised of members from the State Security Agency, the Police Crime Intelligence Division, the police detective division and a few other state departments, but effectively excluded the South African Revenue Service. And these two efforts then ran parallel from, from around 2011 on, both trying to you know, bring down the, or the, the increase in the illicit uh, part of the tobacco sector in different ways. The, the South African Revenue Service project elected to focus on the entire value chain. So it, it looked at anything from the imports of raw tobacco or processed tobacco or cigarettes or tobacco products to local farmers, which sits at the front of the value chain, to the tobacco markets, 
to all the different people who play a role in, in that part of the supply, to the manufacturers, to the lawyers, the, the, the facilitators, the financiers, the other raw materials such as um, you know the products that, that are used to wrap a cigarette, to make the boxes, to put the plastic covering on the filter rods which are cut into you know little pieces to make up the filter of cigarettes, the ink uh, that they use to print the brands. Um, and then to the wholesalers and the retailers and the transporters and the storage facilities and so forth. Um, it included other scams, which I didn't mention earlier, such as removal in bond scams and removal in transit scams, which really dealt with those people and entities that brought products into the country, claiming them to be destined for other countries and they only happened to be pa passing through South Africa. But in reality, some would fall off the truck somewhere along the line um, and enter our local market. Whereas the and 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 the revenue service was indiscriminate, so they also looked at the multinationals as well as the smaller players, um, because uh, we had realised early on that the losses to the fiscus was not only attributable to these scams I've mentioned to you now. They were also far more sophisticated uh, base erosion and profit scheme, profit shifting schemes that were on big scales uh, and they were sophisticated where monies were leaving our shores and those activities could not be attributed to these smaller players. And so the revenue service looked at all sorts of tax types and um, you know, including payroll taxes, unemployment insurance fund uh, contributions, income tax, value-added tax, excise duty, of course, and so forth, um, but also corporate taxes and the way in which these things were treated. And in the course of that, we, of course, uncovered a whole range of other misdemeanors and criminal offenses of money laundering, corruption, racketeering, and so forth. And we found these to be not only attributable to these smaller players. While SARS were thorough in their approach, the multi-agency tobacco task team were all too happy to take their orders from the multinational brands. The multi-agency uh, tobacco task team elected a slightly different approach. They aligned themselves uh, very tightly with the multinational uh, tobacco manufacturers and in fact took their cue from them. So they did not investigate the multinational companies. They only sought to direct their focus and attention on those smaller competitors in the local market that the multinational companies wanted them to look at. The term I used at the time was regulatory capture. And this is, this is something not unique to South Africa. This is where ostensibly clean, large multinationals with big influence sidle up to government, either at a political level or at a senior government official level, and manage to convince them to do something. And, you know, uh, the multinational tobacco manufacturers have been found to be doing this for ages in other parts of the world, often um, blatantly by bribing people, if, 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 if not through uh, more subtle ways of influence and lobbying. You know, some of them have been caught red-handed bribing politicians and, and, and senior government officials to, to do certain things that would favor them. In the South African context, it was far more subtle in the beginning. It was simply a, a question of them being perceived by the multi-agency tobacco task team as being the good guys and the good guys who are paying their taxes properly and doing nothing wrong and believing this myth that all the local manufacturers were all organized crime syndicates that were also engaging in uh, illegal drug trafficking, sponsoring of terrorism, gun running and human trafficking, and they were generally just terrible people who should be shut down immediately. And that was a, uh, that was a myth that was spread by these multinational companies, correct? 
Yes, I mean you could you you can actually see if you if you were to look at early public statements that had been issued by spokespeople for British American Tobacco, for instance, and also the Tobacco Institute of Southern Africa, that was a uh, a grouping that represented, amongst others, the interests of the multinationals. The the constant messaging throughout the early 2000s into the mid 2000s were things like, you know, if you support these these smaller local manufacturers, you are indirectly supporting, you know, the funding of terrorism or human trafficking or organized crime or drug cartels or whatever the case might be. Now, look. It didn't help the independent uh, smaller players that you know some of their directors were very colourful people with dodgy backgrounds. So if you look at the case of Masters International, the one proprietor there was a guy John Bredenkamp, who has a particular history in sanction busting and the trade of arms. If you look at a company that opened up in Botswana, but also serviced the South African market, Benson Craig, the one proprietor there is Craig Williamson, who is famous for being an apartheid spy and admitted to having, you know, murdered people in order to prop up the regime. You know, and and so there are a few examples like this. And, you know, it was kind of as if that was leveraged upon in the messaging by the multinationals that these smaller competitors are, are, are the bad guys. And they were often not wrong, because I did indicate that the smaller independents were, in the beginning at least, quite willing to cut corners and um, engage in illicit activity. But I think they overplayed the, 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 the narrative, if I can use that term as much as I hate it. And they, they kind of kept on messaging that, look, we are the good guys and, and these smaller guys are the bad guys, when in fact all of them were bad guys in one way or another. And it is because they were capable then of influencing the multi-agency tobacco task team that a lot of friction began to develop between the revenue service and in particular myself and people on this multi-agency tobacco task team. Over time, the relationship between the multi-agency tobacco task team and the multinational brands grew ever more insidious. They were quite happy to engage in illicit activity, justifying the, you know, the, 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 the means by arguing what the end would be. And so they would, in fact, hook up with private rogue intelligence agents and rogue state intelligence agents that participated in unauthorized activities to illicitly um, monitor you know, people's telephones, to acquire sophisticated spy equipment and use those on unsus- unsuspecting people. They corrupted their way through um, all of these smaller companies by bribing people who worked in the companies or even in one case, a lawyer of, of a grouping of one of, the, of these companies. And they openly collaborated with, in particular, British American Tobacco in South Africa and in the United Kingdom. In fact, at a point in time, they actually shared resources. And some of these people illegally broke into premises. They planted tracking devices and listening devices. They had millions in slush funds to pay for these activities. And, you know, it just became incredibly incestuous. It became a racket. You know, they laundered money. They used uh, anonymized means to to pay these bribes. Some of these bribes were cross-jurisdictional bribes. They extended their, their activities into neighboring countries like Zimbabwe. And it just became a complete nest, in my view. And I was not you know, averse to pointing this out to them and trying to get them to correct their ways. The problem, of course, at the time was I I never realized the extent to which they had already been compromised. And um, we basically, you know, developed a lot of friction on that. Although SARS not only had to contend with the illicit manufacturers, but the multi-agency task team too, Project Honey Badger still proved to be effective. Maybe a little too effective. 
by, by late 2013 and early 2014, if you look at the independent analysis conducted in the tobacco industry, you can see that the effect of uh, Project Honey Badger by the Revenue Service did have a marked effect on the illicit component of the sector. So much so that it halted the upwards curve and pushed it down. It actually reduced the illicit portion of the market. And some of the initial figures issued by the South African Revenue Service in the very early part of 2014 indicated that the the, the excise take on tobacco products increased by, by a quarter, by 25%, which is, you're talking billions of rands. So the, the, those uh, revenue service officials that were involved in Honey Badger or some of the sub-projects under Honey Badger were certainly making inroads in reducing the illicit trade. It was then also around that time that Firstly, I and then later other people at the Revenue Service came under direct attack by the very people who were part of this multi-agency tobacco task team. And we were being accused of all sorts of things that, in fact, they had been doing. So we were accused of having you know, millions in secret funds and illegally spying on people and tapping their phones and breaking into everything they were guilty of, we were accused of. And, um, you know, for one reason or another, our media initially bought into this. And um, these interests then coagulated somewhat with the state capture project. And you began to see a convergence of different agendas. So on the one hand, you had these well-resourced um, officials in the multi-agency task team who had their own motives for getting us out the picture and stopping us. And suddenly you had the state capture project that saw this opportunity to leverage off in order to get rid of people and take over the revenue service. And then, you know, everybody joined the fray. So every Tom, Dick and Harry that had some or other beef with the revenue service or in particular me or some other people I worked with, for whatever reason, jumped on the bandwagon and, and helped this whole thing along. And it's then in the end of September that the then president uh, of the country, Mr. Jacob Zuma, appointed Mr. Tom Moyane to take over the revenue service. And he seemed to believe these stories uncritically. I believe deliberately so. And the first thing he did was to kind of muzzle us and to uh, prohibit us from publicly disproving all of these stories. And the second thing he did was he, he allowed these stories to, to, to fester and ferment and adapt and change as time went on. And it was uh, a matter of two weeks after he took office that the, the so-called rogue unit narrative uh, took hold in the, in the public space through one of our national newspapers. And that ran unabated for the next two calendar years. And, you know, it was, it, it, one of the effects was that Honey Badger was completely counted. None of the 15 entities that ought to have been before court and paid, paid their dues ever did so. And you can see that again in the statistics, the independent statistics, where in early 2014, the curve had turned. We had reduced the, the illicit portion of the tobacco trade and the increase in excise, um, you know, was around 25%. That almost immediately reversed and began to increase very sharply, much sharper than before bypassing the highest figure and going up to the 30% and, and in some studies even higher, which meant that within a matter of two years, almost a third at least of the entire trade in cigarettes in the country was illegal. One in three cigarettes you are smoking is Effectively. Not... Yeah. yeah. That's and, crazy. and this continued, this continued and, um, I did see some preliminary figures just before lockdown that suggested that the 
the the new uh, people that have taken over at the revenue service seems to have managed to to do some things to at least slow down you know this um, ever rising number it did slow down and it seems to have been stopping and i would attribute that by and large to the decision by the revenue service to place permanent staff within these tobacco manufacturing plants to monitor the the, the manufacturing um, real time which was i think a good idea and that seemed to have some effect but of course came lockdown that banned all manufacturing that effectively rendered it all uh, you know um, null and void and, and yeah during the time of the ban there was an instance just before level three of the lockdown where president ramaphosa announced that cigarettes along with alcohol would be allowed under that level however Dr. Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma, now Minister of Cooperative Government and Traditional Affairs, announced that the decision on tobacco sales had been reversed. It would remain prohibited. Regardless of their decision, the people still bought cigarettes. UCT held a study that showed that up to 90% of smokers still purchased cigarettes under the ban. Not only that, but they paid more for them too. The newly inflated tax-free profit margin and virtually untouched demand meant that illicit cigarette producers were making a killing. Naturally, this caused speculation over the nature of government's sudden reversal. Look, I don't like speculation. My entire life, my professional life, was um, <clears throat> schooled around the, the science of determining fact and distinguishing fact from fiction. And I often found that what made that process very difficult was if you speculate or assume or presume or if you do not interrogate claims that lack uh, sufficient substance. And in a sense, the story I told you now about how, you know, uh, the revenue service ultimately came to be captured was precisely because of rumor and speculation and processes that were not designed to d distinguish between fact and fiction. My philosophical approach and advice to people would be to be skeptical enough to question suppositions that are put forth. And let's be smart about it as South Africans. We are a smart nation, I believe that. We are also a nation of rumor mongering. So let's put more emphasis on questioning things and trying to understand them and keeping our minds open. So that, that would be the approach I would recommend. And what that means in practical terms is that, first of all, let us not personalize. Because, you know, in the, in the classic um, uh, studies of philosophy, we are all taught the, you know, the, 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 the 11 logical fallacies that cause us to often come to conclusions, uh, you know, that, that we ought not to come to. And I think people should perhaps recall, you know, those 11 uh, illogical, uh, sorry, not illogical, logical fallacies. One of them is, is ad hominem, and that, that deals with where you personalize things. So the fact of the matter is that uh, we do have a president and we do have a minister of Kohta and they do play a role in in communicating with us and, and, and setting the rules under lockdown during this pandemic. But uh, they are representative of a government and so they're part of a collective and it is their roles within the collective that make them stand out and why they get to communicate some things to us and issue regulation to us. But governments can change minds like all of us as human beings. And so, first of all, the president did announce on behalf of government that cigarettes would be, um, would be allowed to be sold during the next round of the, the adaptation of the regulations. And then government did change its mind. And that was announced by the Minister of Kohta, who is responsible from a statutory perspective to regulate these things. 
but it's not like how things work between you and I, for instance, talking now on your, your podcast. It's a far more complex process that, that requires a lot more people and consultation and debate and discussions and state law advisors and people who draft these regulations and so on. So at least at a principled level, it's not as simple as Cyril Ramaphosa versus Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma. I think government is entitled to change their mind if they want to, just as we are entitled to. I can decide to travel somewhere tomorrow and then I can change my mind during the evening and tomorrow decide not to travel there. And that doesn't mean anything. What I should say, though, is where I do believe government ought to be criticized and questioned is when this happens, they don't communicate well. And as a consequence, what they signal to us as the people that they account to and uh, the people who we that, that trust them to make the right decisions for us, they confuse us and they play into these kinds of theories and conspiracies and then they don't defend them properly or they don't deal with them properly. So at the very heart of it, for me, the biggest criticism I can, I can direct towards government during this lockdown phase is the manner in which they communicate. And we don't see it only limited to the issue of cigarettes. You know, it's meetings are called and then they're called off. And ministers tell us to be ready to be briefed on things and then they don't brief us or they call it off. And it just seems to me that they are very uncoordinated and they don't feel that they have to justify things to us, which I have a fundamental problem with because we live in a democratic constitutional society which poses the obligation on our government to be open, transparent, rational, and, and explain what they do. So if minds were changed on the cigarette ban, tell us why. Show us the data. Show us what informed the decision to, first of all, ban cigarettes at the time when you took the decision. Then when you changed your mind, show us why you changed your mind. And if you changed your mind again subsequently to that, tell us why and show us the data. Let us hear those people that changed your mind. And that's missing for me. And the approach to the cigarette ban is a whole lot different to the approach government demonstrated when they engaged the taxi industry, for instance, early on in the ban, or the spaza shop um, sector early on in the ban. In those two instances, they were very open. They were prepared to sit around the table and speak to these people, ultimately found a midway which didn't suit either party 100%, but they came to some kind of agreement. Uh, on the cigarette issue, it, you know, it's a, they put up a wall and they say, if you want to know the reasons, take us to court. And that, I don't believe, is how a responsible, open and transparent uh, constitutional government should behave. We all know cigarettes are bad for you, but we also know that sugar is bad for you. We also know that South Africa has a high uh, incidence of obesity and a high incidence of diabetes. And we also know as a fact that both those conditions are high risk conditions when it comes to COVID-19, which means if the approach of government is to take care of the citizenry by controlling and, and regulating and managing what we consume and what we have access to in the market, Let's see that across the board and not just limited to one particular product. So that's kind of the approach I would take. Having said that, the fact of the matter is that, you know, there's always some interplay between politics, governance, and uh, cigarettes. There's a book that's just recently been released called Dirty Tobacco, which uh, I really recommend you read. Also Definitely written by a South African. Uh, Talita Snickers, it shows you the history of how big tobacco has been controlling our minds, what we see, what we believe, how they've been influencing governments, unduly influencing governments, bribing their way through various situations, 
it's a it's an enlightening book and says in far more eloquent ways what I'm trying to explain to you now. But I, I would not discount the possibility of you know politics and factional sentiments and, and, and dirty tricks within the context of the ban. But I do not think it's a straight line in the way in which many of the stories are being put out there, you know, that this is a CR versus NDZ or NDZ versus CR or NDZ receiving, you know, benefits, proceeds from crime or that sort of thing. I, I don't believe that for one second. It's not how, it's not how it works. It's not how our regulations works work it's not how our government functions it's practically impossible for it to work in the way in which these theories are are, are, are framed but i also think you know that uh, where people are questioned about relationships with others they they should be frank and open i think politicians owe that to to us as citizens the relationship in question in this instance would be between dr glamini zuma and adriano mazzati a self-confessed cigarette smuggler and a donator to a political campaign. Von Lochenberg spoke to Mazzotti in his book, Tobacco Wars. Mazzotti claimed that the interaction was per chance and his contribution was negligible. I asked Von Lochenberg whether he thinks that the relationship is more perverse than what Mazzotti claims. I don't know, and, and that's why I say I think they should speak for themselves. I would, you know, if it is not my right to confront uh, Dr. Glamini Zuma or Mr. Mazzotti. They need to, you know, elect whether they want to tell us who arranged the meeting and who not, uh, and why they met and what was discussed and who else was present. I tried to, to do that to an extent. He did give me answers, and I explain his answers in the book. I accepted what he said to me. I have no reason uh, not to. The fact of the matter is that the decision to ban cigarettes is not, you know, it's not helping anybody in the tobacco industry, not the multinationals and not the, the local manufacturers, which I believe is why they are all taking government to, to court now. So in that sense, I cannot see the logic behind some of these theories clearly. But I, I wouldn't want to venture into speculative discussions that may or may not be so because you know it's been done to me and um, I was never afforded an opportunity to participate in those discussions so the last thing I'm ever going to do is is do the same I may have certain private views of people like Mr. Mazzotti or I might have personal views on people like uh, Dr. Blamini Zuma but I should not let those either positively or negatively affect a kind of discussion such as what I'm having with you. My question would, would be a slightly different one, and that is that if you put the hypotheses up or the theory or the, or the suggestion, I would rather ask that you, that you let, let us look at the evidence before us and let us test that evidence and then let us go to those people and put it to them. And depending on how they respond to us and explain to us, then we come to learn more and we may have follow-up questions or not if they choose not to tell us, which is also their right. And then maybe one can begin to move closer towards you know, an answer. But uh, as things stand now, I, I know that they did have interactions. I think there's evidence of that. There are photographs of where they, mm. they stood. They've given some explanation. At this point in time, all we have is, is, is what they've explained. You know, they said these were chance encounters. We know that Mr. Mazzotti um, assisted in the provisioning of, of paraphernalia to uh, Dr. Blamini Zuma's uh, campaign to become president of the ANC. But I don't think, you know, I don't think uh, he was the only such contributor. You know, it's the nature of, of political campaigns. They, they, they have contributors. And whether there's something untoward to that, maybe, maybe not, I don't know. It's, is it something that ought to be questioned and looked into? Absolutely, I think it should be. And let's start with those people, you know, and. 
often it's how they respond to it that that tells you whether they're being honest or not or whether they think it's a it's an issue or not and that's about the advice i can give you anthony i i you know i i even may have private views of what i think is going on here but um it's not something that i feel it would be responsible mm. to put out there um just because i happen to have the platform i think you know investigative journalists and and, and people those oversight bodies that hold our politicians to account and people who choose to take matters to court they should ask these questions and 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 use those opportunities to get people to explain themselves and if they if they think i'm somebody who can contribute to show them how to do that i'd be happy to do that over a cup of coffee but i'm no longer a revenue service official i'm no longer an official to the state and it's just not my business to to do that yeah Perhaps a more pressing concern is what sort of implications the inflow of billions of rands into organized crime will have on the tobacco industry and the country in general. Yeah, look, that that is my personal primary concern with the ban. I do not believe that government considered the consequences of the ban thoroughly. Because when you when you advance prohibitive legislation in a society, especially a society that is democratic and has the kind of bill of rights that we have in our constitution which is incredibly modern and advanced and open minded you must know that when you tell people what not to do and you prohibit them by way of legislation and decree you must know that your police and your prosecuting authority and your revenue service agency and all the parts of the criminal justice system must be very capable and ready and have plans in place to deal with uh, the fallout because you are effectively opening up a completely new and massive illicit market in society in the south african case when government banned the trade in cigarettes they immediately invited every single criminal enterprise worldwide to come to south africa and make money here and what you see then is instances of traditional organized crime syndicates and gangs that were involved in in other crimes that have simply added cigarettes to their portfolio and they've diversified in in, in trading in cigarettes because they can charge these great uh, amounts for cigarettes the traditional tobacco smuggling cig- cigarette syndicates you know they <clears throat> they've just moved into overdrive you've had i've seen evidence of transnational crime syndicates that have now come into the market and all of these people have begun to collaborate and operate symbiotically and you now have innocent people like spaza shops and and mom and pop stores and other entrepreneurs also jumping onto the bandwagon and feeding into this um, underground trade all making a killing and all of that money is cash all of that money is off radar and now you have you know 90% of 7 million smokers that are pushing all their cash into the pockets of criminals effectively what that means is by the time the ban is lifted we are going to sit with new smuggling routes new criminals old criminals that have become richer old syndicates that have joined hands with new syndicates and people that are not going to simply stop trading in cigarettes simply because the ban has been lifted they will most likely convert their pricing model where in the current huge demand and low supply environment they can charge excessive amounts once the ban is lifted they are simply going to take on the local industry and go the invert and they're going to sell the same product for you know below the legal price that the legitimate market can sell it and that's going to continue i would have wanted to see government at the time when they announced the ban demonstrate their foresight and and saying to the public this is what our law enforcement agencies have put into place both proactively and reactively to uh, anticipate the consequences that that we see will happen because of the ban and i would have also liked to see government to say to the 7 million addicted smokers 
these are the alternatives that we provide you. So, you know, we've, we understand and recognize that you, it's going to be difficult to just quit cold turkey. So this is how you do it. These are the other alternative products. Uh, we're going to make them cheaper or make them available to you in the market. But there seems to me to have been none of that. And if there was, it was certainly not communicated. So that is my prediction. I think we've pushed over a billion rand into the illicit economy. We sat with a criminal justice system and revenue service that was completely broken thanks to state capture pre-lockdown. They weren't coping then already. They're certainly not coping during lockdown. Lockdown bans have compounded things, and I think it's just going to be a nightmare for them to try and claw back that, that money. It's all in all, I think it was badly thought out, badly executed, and messy. Government has since been taken to court for various lockdown restrictions by a number of parties. In particular, the legitimate cigarette industry. I asked von Lochenberg what his thoughts on the matter were. One thing I would recommend is that we not see these kinds of things as losses per se. We, are, we find ourselves in our developing state with our terrible history and the remnants of that history that's still ever present in our daily society. And the fact that we're a young democracy with a, with a constitution of the type that we have these kinds of challenges under conditions that we've never seen in the world before. You know, this pandemic is, an, is a new thing. We're moving in uncharted terrain. Is a, very, is a very good time for us to develop the rules of our society. And I think when courts rule on these things, they, they give us clarity, whatever that clarity may be, and whether we may agree with that on a personal level or not, that is how democracies and constitutional states function, um, by rule of law. And where there are areas that are grey um, and matters come before court and the courts give us that final clarity, we should see that as a win either way, you know, no matter whether government wins or loses or whether the applicant wins or loses. It is just the nature of a develop, developmental society. And in that sense, I think it's good that these things are challenged. I think it's good that our courts give us the clarity that they give us. You know, and even if these matters have to go all the way to the constitutional court to give ultimate constitutional clarity, so be it. The states always got that benefit. You know, they can, they can litigate to the highest courts of the land because taxpayers fund them. Whereas, you know, uh, us common folk, <laughs> when we want to challenge government, there's not much equality of arms when it comes to legal funding. But I think the tobacco industry and some of these other big businesses that do these challenges, do they are doing us a favor as society, and we should recognize that. Whether they win or lose is a different debate. Uh, I, think, I think we should welcome, we should welcome legal clarity on, on, on gray areas. And um, as I've said, we're living in uncertain times. We're dealing with something none of us can claim to fully understand. And I think governments will make mistakes. We're not unique in that sense, you know. And as long as we learn from that, and as long as we admit those mistakes, and as long as we respond to the manner in which we've made mistakes in a way that, that maintains the trust that exists, or does not exist, at least build the trust, then then it's a good thing. It's a good thing for all of us. Okay, thank you, Johan, so much for your time. This has been quite a long interview, so I do appreciate you lending me some of your time to speak to That's me. That's only a pleasure. Yeah, you've, I Anytime. think this is, thank you very much. This is, I think this, this story needs to be told, and I think especially now, um, facing the challenge that, challenges that we are, I think, some context is much is much needed. Um, so thank you for providing us with some context. And then thank also, you. thank you for your role in our democracy. I know you've had quite a thankless job. You've been attacked by yeah. the South African media and you've been the target of disinformation campaigns and smear campaigns. But I just want you to know that I am thankful and I know 
a lot of people in South Africa are thankful for the work that you did while you're at SARS and, and the book and the, the, the journalism that you have produced exposing, exposing all of this. You really play an important role in the maintenance of our democracy. So I thank you a lot for that. I, I appreciate that message. Thank you, Anthony. And I'd like to thank you for making it this far. A lot of effort was put into the production of this episode, so we are incredibly thankful for you to taking. Yeah, we uh, a lot of effort was put into the making of this episode, so we're incredibly grateful for the time that you took to listen to it. We recorded this during the height of the cigarette ban, but life got in the way of us finishing it. Although it's a little dated, I hope you still found your hand story relevant and interesting. As always, I'm open to any and all constructive criticism that you may have to offer about any aspect of the podcast. Before I leave you, I would like to thank Johan once again for taking the time out of his busy schedule to speak to me. I'd also like to give a big shout out to Jordan for doing a great job on the music and the voice recording. Um, How do I sign off? I suppose like this. I don't know. How do I say bye? Bye. Bye. See you next time. See you next time.